Partially Examined Life precognitions introduce philosophical topics for upcoming episodes to give you a few weeks to do the reading yourself. They also serve as quick, standalone summaries of the work. You can read more about these topics, get the works we cover, and listen to Partially Examined Life conversations at partiallyexaminedlife.com. Hi, this is Seth Paskin from the Partially Examined Life, and this is the precognition for Robert Nosick's Anarchy, State, and Utopia, chapters 1 through 3 and 7. Robert Nozick was a 20th century American philosopher born in 1938 in Brooklyn, New York, who died in 2002. He attended Columbia as an undergraduate, Princeton as a graduate, and Oxford on a Fulbright Fellowship. After encountering the work of Austrian school economists F.A. Hayek and Ludwig von Mises, the libertarian Murray Rothbard, and the, well, Ayn Rand, Nozick turned his attention to political philosophy. Remarkably, Nozick's first and most famous book was Anarchy, State, and Utopia, A Defense of Libertarianism. This work is understood as a counterpoint to A Theory of Justice by John Rawls, which we covered in an earlier Partially Examined Life podcast. Both philosophers taught at Harvard at the same time, and Nozick's book was published three years after Rawls, in 1974. Nozick opens Anarchy, State, and Utopia by asking the question whether there should be any state at all, or why not anarchy? This is his way of revisiting John Locke's state of nature and social contract theory. Nozick's basic assumption is, if we can show that a state would be better than even the best form of anarchy, then there is justification for a state. This sounds like it is going to be political philosophy, but Nozick claims that it is, in fact, moral philosophy. What persons may or may not do to each other in the state of nature which is to say anarchy, sets the boundaries for what they may do to each other through the apparatus of a state. The state's fundamental coercive power is to enforce moral prohibitions. Nozick then undertakes a series of thought experiments about how individuals in the state of nature might come together to form civil societies and eventually a formal state. At the beginning of Chapter 2, Nozick takes Locke's characterization of the state of nature as a starting point. Individuals are in a state of perfect freedom to act and dispose of property within the laws of nature without dependency on the will of other individuals. The laws of nature dictate that no one ought to harm another in life, health, liberty, or property. And when people transgress these laws, the harmed party has a right to defend himself and recover from the transgressor equivalent to the harm caused. Locke claims that civil government is the proper remedy for the inconveniences of the state of nature. Nozick qualifies this claim, indicating that what needs to be done first is to see what remedies exist in the state of nature to address the inconveniences up to but not including the creation of the state. He wants to see how many of the inconveniences can be addressed by individuals freely collaborating without a state apparatus and then see what gap remains between that remedy and a formal state. Nozick explores a series of ways in which individuals might form protective associations to adjudicate claims. A few considerations that come up in his discussion are, if individuals must freely opt in, what to do with individuals who refuse to participate? If participation is mandatory, but the association is geographically restricted, what to do with individuals from outside that geography? If two individuals conflict and belong to different associations, how to adjudicate between the organizations on behalf of the individuals? Nozick fleshes out these cases with more detail, but the important clarification that arises is that the one primary thing that distinguishes a state is ultimate enforceability. This means only the state can enforce a judgment against an individual or party, and no individual or party is allowed to enforce judgments on their own. 
Nozick then imagines that there is a dominant protective association that arises from the state of nature. This association has a monopoly on the enforcement of adjudication for transgressions between individuals in some geography. Submission to the power of this association is not required. Individuals make a market-driven decision to participate, meaning the service provided, the protection, is worth the price paid, whether that's goods, money, or the loss of liberty through submission to its authority. Now, this dominant association sounds a lot like a state according to the criteria we established. How exactly does it differ? Well, for one, the market explanation of participation requires no express agreement or social contract. Locke and others hold to the idea that the creation of civil government is either explicitly or implicitly an agreement between individuals to cede power to an authority. Nozick is trying to show a way where the state can arise from rational self-interest as opposed to contractual consent. He references Adam Smith's invisible hand as a model for how this would work. It also appears that the way in which the protective association arises, which sets boundaries on both its initial justification and ongoing legitimacy, does not make it a monopoly in the way required to be considered a state. The association does not require participation from individuals within the geography. It just appears beneficial to the majority to do so. If some minority feel it is in their rational best self-interest not to participate, they don't. The association cannot, and more importantly, it is not morally legitimate for them to exercise a monopoly on enforcement. Monopoly enforcement at the level of a state requires mandatory participation by individuals in its jurisdiction. Another difference is that as a market-driven service, the protection provided by the association holds only for those that pay and presumably could be provided at different level or in different ways that would be priced differently. The monopoly state would presumably have to provide a flat level of protection to all participating members, and, as the cost of providing this protection would vary across the constituency, the protection would necessarily be redistributive. That is, the ability of people to pay for the required protection would vary, so as the state collected its payment, some would end up paying more, and some less so that everybody got protection. Let's pause for a minute here to take stock of Nozick's position and bring Rawls into the discussion. Nozick's working definition of a state involves a monopoly on enforceability and mandatory participation, which necessitates redistribution. Both are morally impermissible on Nozick's account because individuals in the state of nature would not be able to impose monopolies on protection or mandate redistribution on other individuals. Rawls would not have disagreed with the criteria, but would have disagreed with the moral permissibility. Rawls assumed the conditions and was concerned to work out the ways in which redistribution could be done equitably, namely his notion of social justice. Nozick wants his dominant protective association to be seen as meeting the criteria of statehood, but only what he considers to be in a morally permissible way. Nozick spends some time countering notions raised by Rawls regarding fairness and procedural rights that you can explore for yourself. His first move to flesh out the dominant association is to ask whether it can enforce the monopoly on punishment. Remembering that the dominant association derives its political power from the moral authority of the individuals who participate, Nozick asks whether individuals could enforce a monopoly on punishment. In other words, could an individual say that she reserves the right to punish anyone who applies a procedure of justice against her of which she doesn't approve? The answer to that question is no, because she could, from a position of partiality, refuse to acknowledge anyone's procedure except her own. Since the association can't be guaranteed to be impartial, 
because it is made up of individuals, presumably, it isn't morally legitimate for it to assert a monopoly on enforcement. Although no monopoly is claimed, however, the association is in a unique position by virtue of its political power. It appears to be a de facto monopoly. It isn't, however, for one important reason. Individuals who voluntarily participate in the association can opt not to have the association adjudicate disputes between them. The association exists to offer the service to participating individuals if they want it. If they feel they can resolve their issues without the association, they may, provided the procedures they use are approved by the association. It is not as easy, or perhaps not even possible, for individuals to opt out in the monopoly of the state. The state may, and often does, intervene what Nozick calls paternalistically to adjudicate disputes even when the individuals don't wish it. This is a subtle but important difference that Nozick think gives the association the de facto power of monopoly, but retains respect for the individual's voluntary participation and right to self-determination. Nozick's way of handling the second criteria on redistribution is less easy to understand. In essence, he is claiming that the redistributive function of the association is actually compensatory as opposed to purely redistributive. Unlike the case just mentioned, where there are two clients who choose to opt out of the protective umbrella for mutually self-interested exchange, the redistribution case involves a client of the association and a non-client, someone who has opted out not in a particular case, but in toto. In the case where a non-member of the association has a grievance against a member, the association cannot allow the non-member to exact their own judgment and punishment, same as in the case between two members, but it also cannot ignore the situation de facto supporting this member. It is not morally permissible for them to fail to protect the member, nor to blindly side with them. The association must act on behalf of the non-member as if they were a member. If the cost incurred through this process were carried by the paying members of the association, the system would in essence be redistributive in the sense that fees paid by the members would cover the cost of cases involving non-members. Nozick claims, however, that the association has a right to request compensation of the non-members for one-time services on their behalf. In this way, the fees paid by the members are not distributed to the non-members, but there is room for non-members to coexist with members in the jurisdiction of the association. The association which exercises power to enforce punishment among voluntary participants and has a way of covering all individuals without compulsion is consistent with the two criteria of statehood posited earlier without being a full-fledged state in Locke's conception. It is what Nozick calls the minimal state, and to his mind is the only one that can be justified on moral grounds. Having established this, he goes on to talk about how individuals can come to acquire what he calls holdings, so as not to use the overdetermined word property, and how redistribution of holdings by a central authority on grounds other than transgressions of natural law is not morally permissible. This is his full, fleshed-out response to Rawls's notion of distributive justice, which I'll leave for you to work your way through on your own or with us in our full episode. I hope you will join us with special guest Stephen Metcalf from Slate for the full discussion. Please make sure to visit our blog at partiallyexaminedlife.com and follow us on Twitter as well as Facebook. If you'd like to be a part of our ongoing community conversation, join our Citizens Membership Group for $5 a month and be connected to a like-minded set of smart and interesting folks. Thanks again. Thank you.